Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast as I'm joined today with one of my standing guest hosts, Mr. Alex Stewart, co-founder of Market Distillery. Thanks for being here again today. Always. So as we start to wrap up the year, we've got a couple of last, you know, economic readings that have come in that, quite frankly, add to the support levels of what we've been talking about really since August. And while I'm not saying today's podcast is a victory lap, I am going to say there's a couple of things in here that we have been forecasting for some time now that are starting to show up. And last week, we talked about the PCE index, which is the Fed's favorite form of inflation, and what that meant and what that reading meant. And we really said, hey, listen, if the CPI reading index, uh, the consumer price index, the other form of inflation, comes in lower than what we had a reading a year ago, even if it still shows it's inflated, but it comes in lower than what that higher reading was, we could see some success in the mortgage interest rate market, and we could see favorable uh, you know, tailwinds for the 10-year treasury to come down. And well, what happened, Alex? Right. We got in what we wanted. And we maybe even- for, and- Maybe no. even a little better, right? Right, exactly. So you want to take a uh, you want you want you want to take our listeners down the path of CPI, what it means, and why it's important, why it's irrelevant. Absolutely, it's uh, the public measure. It's what the public probably pays attention to more than anything about what inflation is doing. And they're again trying to measure a very complex thing because they're trying to say what are prices in general doing in the United States, and so they measure it by grabbing items to represent different categories and they put different weights on it and they ultimately create this one number that's used to say our price is going up or price is going down. Mm -hmm. And when they say the inflation rate, what that is, is that saying how much is the CPI changing compared to the same number a year ago? It's a, it's a moving average, right? Correct. 12 months lagging right. average. Right. And so um, when we look back, this again has not been a relevant topic since the 80s. That's that's an important thing to remember is we have not really had any reason to talk about inflation for a really long time. So what you're telling me is there's two specific generations that have never even seen inflation. Absolutely. Never had to worry about it. Absolutely. And that would probably say 50% of the population is what that generation makes up. Well, those right, two yeah, millennials yeah. and Gen, Gen, y, yep. Gen Z, Gen Y, all of those uh, – Generations have never had to battle see inflation at this level. And, Correct. You know, it, when you haven't seen something coming and then it's here, even though you were warned it's going to be here, and even though you were told there's factors that was causing that, and that, you know, we've done many a podcast now discussing what happened and what has to happen, doesn't mean you got to like it. Sure. Right? Sure. But there's you do have to live with it. You right? have to live with it. That's the hard you know, part. You know, just, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not the truth. And there's a lot of people that are irritated and quite frankly, pissed off about this right now. Sure. Well, in inflation, what a lot of people don't realize is that's the, it taxes you. I mean, Correct. that's that's the hard part is you got to, we haven't had to think about this, so we don't necessarily know how to think about it. But in general, what inflation is, is what the government did and what the Fed did when they injected a bunch of money mm -hmm. into the economy to save it. Yep. Uh was essentially raise ultimately raise the amount of money in the market, which is the definition of inflation, caused prices to go up. And what that did is it taxed everybody. If your income didn't go up, you immediately were taxed because now the prices are all higher. Yeah, and to kind of add to that, and we're gonna get into the inflation reading, but just for our audience, let me give you some perspective here. If you have a thousand dollars sitting in the bank, it's just sitting in the bank. You're you're garnering a little bit of interest from the bank but it's sitting there and you don't have it in some sort of an investment vehicle, right. whether it's equities being the stock market, bonds, as we've talked about many a times, a great way, or even real estate. You have there, you have I me mean, obviously be more than a thousand at that point, but let's just use a thousand dollars. If that money's sitting there mm -hmm. in today's inflation rate, that money is only worth $919. Right. It's only worth, you're losing $81 on your thousand dollars for what? 
right. because of the effects of what the government has done here, right? We've caused this. We being the government has caused this. And now we've got to find a way to correct it, which requires what the Fed did yesterday. We'll get into, but it starts with the CPI reading. So if you want to jump into that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we we peaked uh, on the measure of the CPI at 9.1% back in June of this year. That was the highest reading we've gotten. And what that means is, again, we, we saw prices rise 9% compared to, you know, the preceding year. Uh, the newest reading that came out now has us at 7.1%. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're 2% off of the peak. Um, ultimately, this was a 0.1% increase in prices. On the month. On the month. And uh, so so that's one takeaway here is uh, it's not that inflation is, is going away as much as inflation is not happening at such a high pace. Uh, and and the reason, part of the reason why is the Fed has stopped injecting money into the market. We know that they are no longer buying bonds. That's called tapering or, you know, tightening of mm-hmm. financial conditions. They're also raising interest rates so that it is less desirable for consumers to go out and borrow money because we know that when a loan is done, uh, whether it's to buy a house or to buy a car or a boat or anything like that, that's creation of new dollars. Correct. That's not taking dollars that existed and giving it from one person to another that is literally creating money on a spreadsheet and it goes out there into the market and that increases the money supply. So by raising the rate there, you slow the loans down. So therefore you slow the amount of money entering in there. And then to your point, velocity of money is another component here. If, right. if I have a bunch of money and we put a bunch of money in the economy, but nobody spends it, then prices probably aren't going to really move. That's correct. But when everybody is spending that money, uh, it's, it's too many dollars chasing too few goods causes prices to go up. And by the way, we know they're spending the money. Sure. And there's a couple of things we'll talk briefly about. We've got credit card debt at an all-time high. All-time high. Yep. And we can also show that minimum payments are being made at one of the highest rates. And we also have seen the savings rates go from a very, very high point post-COVID to one of the lowest points post-COVID. Right. So we know the money's being spent. That hasn't stopped. That velocity of money has not. That velocity of money has not, not stopped being spent. And well, that's California, a California is fighting inflation by giving people money. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if, if in Florida here we don't really talk about that a lot because it's right. not happening. But that is sort of a. I think we would laugh about the idea that you can fight inflation by giving people money because that is a self perpetuating yeah. cycle. You're just recreating the cycle. Um, but when we look at it by component, we got to remember that. The, basically, the government releases this report, and they say what prices did what in what categories, but they're not equally weighted. So, mm-hmm. for instance, we know that shelter and housing makes up 40% of the of the weight. Right. Uh, so they're far more important than some of your other categories. And when we look at what changed, we can see that uh, about half of the categories increased and half of the categories decreased. The increases primarily came in shelter food at home, food away from home. Uh, there was some increase in apparel and medical uh, commodities. And then the decreases were largely related to energy and oil. And we see this at the pump, right? Yeah. Gas price has gone, at least here locally, from closer to five all the way down now to under three Right, is what we're seeing. So, um, but, but also that's a reduced, like that should not be happening either. We talked a little bit on the last correct. show about why, but you know, the oil reserve is strategic oil reserves being used up at a rapid rate to the point where we're almost halfway through it. 
not good. We've got taxes that have been removed on that for political purposes, right. not good. You know, the, the current administration is trying to offset inflation and stagger people's belief that this inflation is painful at the pumps, right? Because that's one of the first places you see it. So they just said, you know what, we'll just, we'll tap into a reserve that quite honestly, we should not be tapping into unless we're selling barrels, right? Because we're getting more money for selling them because the dollar was so high because it's inflated, but we're actually using them here at home too. And we're also reducing a tax that's going to, that, that tax is important that we get that because that actually funds other things. And now we don't have that funding. So we're going to go print more money, go ask for more funding to get that. So that, that's a, that's another vicious cycle. But I guess what I'm getting with that is once these temporary reliefs go away, yep. <laughs> this is going to show back up in the inflationary measure. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's interesting. I saw that uh, the gas prices are highly correlated with the approval rating of the president. <laughs> and so, and, and I think if you start to think about this and pay attention, yeah. the gas price is one of the most in-your-face prices that you are constantly looking at and dealing with on a sure. regular basis. So you're far more sensitive to that. So I think in general, when you look at it from how can I make people feel better about finances? Well, if I can make gas prices go down, <laughs> that's a great. They, they probably yeah. are, are going, oh man, prices are getting better because right. the pump is getting cheaper. I know that, that I, I recognize that when I think that. Uh, so that's an interesting takeaway. But what I look at when I look at these categories also is it feels to me, not that you don't need gas, but it feels to me like we have inflation on things you need, shelter and food. Mm -hmm. And we have prices coming down on some stuff that is a little more discretionary. I mean, not that you don't want to drive, but uh, you can pull back on how much you're driving and save some money there. Sure. Uh, but it's hard to pull back on eating. Right. So... So as we get into the CPI and we kind of talk about one of the things I wanted to look at, if we're looking at a 12-month average here just for our listeners, you know, we're starting from November moving forward, and we're going to replace a November index. And the November index was a reading of 0.5, and then December's was 0.6, and then January was 0.6. All of last year, which is kind of adding to this heightened level of inflation, and February's 0.5, and we don't really see it get down to about March at 0.3, and then it goes back up again in the 0.6s. So in our commentary over the course of the last really six months, we've been discussing that as these, these indexes start to become monthly replaced by the previous month, we believed that the readings were going to be lower. Now, that doesn't mean inflation is going away. It just means it's lower inflation than the previous reading 12 months ago. And in doing so, what the natural um, cause and effect of that is, is that bonds will come down because of that. And so will mortgage-backed securities will go up and therefore rates will come down. And, you know, I'm not saying that inflation is directly correlated with mortgage bonds. What I'm saying is inflation is directly correlated with the fact that interest rates come down. So as, as, as we have more inflation, the higher interest rates we have. And as we have less inflation, the lower, the lower the rates. To put in perspective, over the course of the last 10 years, we really haven't seen above 3% inflation. Sure. And because, so because that's really been more around too. So because of that, rates have been very low. Right. Very low. Right. And as this inflation went up, we saw interest rates peak to seven and a half, something we haven't seen in the last really decade plus. That's why that happened. Now, as this comes back down, we're going to see some massive relief, which we've talked about the, the disparity between the 10-year treasury, what it should be and what it is right. uh, for interest rates. And all of that's starting to come to a head right now. Right. And over the course of the next three months, we're replacing three high indexes with what I think will be lower indexes. They may not be really low like this month, but they'll be lower. And if they're any lower than what they currently are, we're going to see inflation come down. Yeah. And I think to try to, you know, what we're doing is we're saying it's harder to continue to grow if you've had big months of growth in the past, right? right. Anyone that has either been in sales or played sports or anything like that, if you have really good 
months or record-setting games or whatever, it's hard to put games that are even higher after that. And so right. that's what we had in inflation. Uh, and, and so we're seeing that we're still having inflation. We're just not having as much inflation. But at this point, I think the economy is like, we'll take whatever we can get. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's probably a good segue into Jerome Powell's commentary yesterday as we have the Fed who meets, and then they decide what they're doing to the federal funds rate. He raised it half a percent, and then he has a press conference where he goes and he answers questions after some prepared remarks. Which they call the commentary. Yeah, what, what stood out to you? What are you thinking about Well, what, what stood out to me, that commentary, is that I always joke, the market goes as Jerome goes. So he and Warren Buffett are two of the only people I know that can move the market with just by saying three simple words. And the market is so stressed right now, it is looking for hope. Right. You know, it's looking for that certainty. So they're going to cling on words that show that certainty or shows what they want to hear, right. right? And so when we talk about the Federal Reserve and their stance, there's two different types of stances. There's a hawkish and there's a dovish, right? Dovish meaning basically a, a relief, quantitative easing. Hawkish meaning tightening, you know, but raising- yeah, Nice weight. or mean, right? Nice or mean, yeah, <laughs> a great way of putting it. More of a technical term. Right. But <laughs> the reality is- um, Sometimes he says one thing, and that's what the markets cling on to because it might have come off as dovish. Um, but in this commentary, what I saw was continued hawkish comments. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was probably 95% hawkish commentary, such as, we will continue to take the stance of raising rates to achieve 2% inflation. While we don't want to see people unemployed, we're prepared for 5% unemployment. Those key terms for me are painful terms. Those still mean we're not done with this, as we talk about, this this crash landing that they're going to do. And we're okay if we disrupt the economy. And I think if Powell had the choice between a self-induced recession and inflation not coming down, he's going to choose a self-induced recession. And the one comment that I think everybody hung their hat on in the market was that he all but really much kind of showed his cards for a quarter hike in January. Yeah. doesn't mean they'll do it, but that he did throw that little, uh, but we also, we could entertain the idea of a quarter hike going into January because we've pumped a lot into the last six meetings. That that sent the market into the bond market and in particularly the 10-year treasury and the mortgage market into this set of relief, right? right? Like, okay, maybe the major hikes are over with. Now, the equity markets didn't like that because they thought with the CPI coming in lower at the rate it did, much lower than anticipated, that we were, we, we would see Okay, 50 and then nothing. Right. And that's not what they got. So you see the stock market start to show up in the form of uncertainty. And we started to see a decline. We saw a reversal of almost 400 points instantaneously. Yep. Um, and then today, again, it's not it's not real uh, pretty in the stock market. And so that's one of the areas that we've talked about that we think is going to suffer from this outcome of fighting inflation and still believe it's going to happen. You know, I believe that there's always a year-end rally to the stock market. There's always the, um, you know, there's always the retail sales and there's always those year-end closeouts and you see a lot of numbers being pumped. But if these first quarter earnings are not adjusted to the forecast, which they're not, they're not going to be, they don't have time to do it. it, They're going to show up flat and it's going to get ugly. And the only way to make that better is to cut expenses. And the number one expense is and always has been payroll. And no matter whether you like what I'm saying or not, that is what's going to happen. Do I want that to happen? Gosh, no, I'm not wishing anyone to lose their job. I'm just stating that's the nature of the circle of, of impact of what happens here. And the Fed kind of supported it yesterday when they said, 
we're prepared for 5% unemployment. Yeah. I mean, right now we're at what, 3.6? Yeah, nationally. Nationally. Yeah. I mean, it, that, there's a lot of room there, unfortunately. Sure. And it's a lot point, of people. I was getting ready to say, that's what I was going to say. 1.4% doesn't sound like a lot, but 1.4% 1. of the workforce, we're talking millions. Like right. that's a lot of people. So um, that's what I took away from the commentary. And for me, I don't think the market rallied. Uh, excuse me. I don't think the rally was as deserved as it got, but you know, here we are and we're seeing it show up in the form of interest rates. So what about you? Well, I was going to ask you a question. So if I, if I heard you right, you think that he was very hawkish, but the market sort of hung on some few words to, to basically react as if he was more dovish than... Correct. Okay. So do you think, let me ask you a question. Do you think that the market is being in denial of what he's saying or not believing what he's saying? Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com. www.boemortgage.com. Because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. So, yeah, that's a good question. So there's a there's two trains of thoughts there. There's a lot of people that believe that Powell isn't going to stand behind his word. Right. There's a lot of people that go, and I think that's what Wall Street thinks. I think Meaning he's going to talk tough, but yeah, when the rubber talk, meets the road. Yeah, he can, he can talk the talk, but not walk the walk. And right. when the rubber hits the road, when it comes to that, that landing that really self-induces that recession, is he going to say, back up and punt, let's go back into easing, let's, shut, let's, let's stop this. There's a lot of, I mean, that's what Wall Street's hoping happens, right? Hope is not a strategy, but that's what they believe. And I think that he's he's made enough false, um, how do I say it? False, um, uh, not accusations, but false- uh, Projections. Thank you, projections that haven't happened that they're like, you know what, This we've seen this movie before. Right. Um, but I think they're more in denial. I think at this point, he has dug his heels in, and I think the Federal Reserve has as well. And I think the pressure- is not coming from any sort of administration because we're not in an election year right now. And I think we're past the midterms. And I think we've been saying behind closed doors, once these midterms are over with, he's got to do it. And he's got to, and he knows he has to do it. And that's why I think he's saying quarter, maybe we'll back down a little bit. We'll see what this, we'll see what this juice does that we've pumped in, in the form of high interest rates, let it cycle through. And then we'll back up and look at it by putting a quarter in there and see what happens. But the reality is, they have a target rate of inflation of 2%. Currently, we're at 7.1. Right. We're far off from that 2%. And I don't think putting a quarter in and waiting 90 days is going to do anything. I, I think that they're going to continue this, this medication, if you may, towards inflation until they achieve the level they want to be at or something breaks. And we've always talked about that. Now, we've talked about that many times in a couple of episodes. But if something breaks, I mean— he's obviously going to stop, right? If the pain point becomes so painful, he'll stop, right? You would think. Yeah. Well, I think he will. I, I think he will do that. But what happens and when that happens, I don't know. Right. Yeah. What's interesting is I agree with everything you said about the commentary. I When I listened to it, I heard nothing but we're going to have to keep rates higher for longer. Mm -hmm. This is not 
as much progress as we thought it would be. Right. And that we're not going to change our target. Right. Unless there's something crazy that happens. Uh, but also that, you know, we are going to, uh, we're not seeing the job loss, right? right. That's, that I was just going to bring up the a initial claims that came out this morning. That's the report again that says how many people are filing, filing for unemployment. And we're not seeing that move in any significant right. way, meaning and meaning fewer people are are losing their jobs than he's probably thinking would happen based on the actions they've taken so far. Right. And that is concerning to him because at the end of the day, like we just talked about, if people have money and they're spending money there or they're able to borrow money for a credit card and spend money, uh, if they have jobs, that's going to continue to keep that. Uh, well, and that, that sounds kind of heartless, but at the end of the day, it's, it's that's how they're looking at it. Yeah. If the pain hasn't shown up where he's looking for it yet, they're going to continue to basically throw in jabs, and that's right. what they're going to continue doing. Right. And so, you know, the reason we're seeing success in the mortgage market, right? and I'm not saying it's a false rally, but I'm saying that the mortgage market was so pent up on the disparity of the 10-year treasury and investors on the secondary market, not when we did a whole episode on this, episode nine, if you want to check it out, episode eight, if you want to check it out, the whole reason why that disparity in the 10 is there is because the investors didn't feel comfortable buying these loans at seven and a half percent because why they knew rates would fall and look at where we are today. What happened? They fell. Right. So now as we see that disparity starting to be removed, because now investors are settling in in these fives, you know, in these, in these low sixes, they're going, okay, now we're now we're somewhere where we think we're going to be. We think this is a little bit of a safe haven because by no means do we think it's going to be in the fours. Right. So we think this is a very safe area. We can remove that elevated uh, amount of money that we've pumped in on the rates to where we should be. And all of a sudden, that's why rates, because that cliff came off, that, 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 that disparity has been removed. So that's why you're seeing rates fall at such a magnitude. They're not falling because, um, you know, the commentary and the inflation came out and everything just was clicking on all cylinders and they believe there's such a dovish market ahead. They're removing that, that basically premium. that extra premium they've yeah. put in the rates as we've talked about what happened. And that's why we're seeing it come back down in the fives. It's probably about five eight seven five at this point, you know, depending on what, what the loan looks like and what the parameters are. But you can get there today. What I think is I think between now and really, you know, going into, let's say, March, I, I think it's going to get lower than that. I do think first quarter we'll see five on the radar uh, without points, without all this other, you know, nonsense that we've had to do over the last three months to get to that rate or even get in that ballpark. But it'll be there. And then imagine if you apply what we've been talking about in today's strategic environment for a buyer, you get a rate down in the upper threes if you work this correctly. So there's a lot of opportunity ahead. Um but you've got to capitalize on it when it's there, right? Because there's going to be peaks and valleys on this year where things happen, right? It's not going to be a consistent low fives, mid fives throughout the year. And I will tell you that if you're working with a loan advisor, or you're working with your originator, and they say, now's the time, you might want to believe them. Right. Because, you know, this whole play the game of I'm going to wait till it gets lower is a dangerous proposition because no one times the market. You know, if you do something right, you did it on accident, and then you brag about it later, but you didn't time the market. You know, in that crypto episode where I talked about I, I got rid of all my crypto in the in the in the upper fifties and lower sixties, that was on accident. That was out of fear. I didn't time the market. I didn't see that coming. That was pure luck. Yeah. That's what happens to most people. They just don't admit that it's pure luck. Yep. So um, you know, it's right time, right place. When you see that happen in the course of this year, take advantage of that. Don't sit on your hands and go, well, I'm gonna wait for it to come lower. That's a bad strategy as we move into this. Yep. Well, and also finding the right house makes the most sense, right? That's the important part is yes. making sure you find the right property because the rates will change potentially and you can still take advantage of that, uh, 
if that happens down the road, it makes sense. Yeah, so absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about. Uh, we had something interesting come up from the National Association of Realtor. Uh, excuse me, National Association of Realtors. Yep. They released their top ten hottest markets, and um, you know I don't know if you have that in front of you there. We could kind of go through it there, but there's there's some markets and regions that are right around us that is worth talking about that came out that I thought okay, well, hey, we should bring this up on the on the podcast because it's pretty enlightening. And some of those areas have been areas where people are transferring to us. Some of those are, I guess, relocating to us. Some of those have been areas that are, you know, on the radar, but there's some new ones on there as well. And uh, pretty excited to talk about those. You want to run through those for a minute, Alex? Absolutely. Yeah, so NAR came out with the top 10 markets that are projected to outperform in 2023 is sort of their phrasing. They um, projected uh, almost almost 5 million existing home sales in 2023 nationally okay. and stable prices just to set the stage as to what the general projection is. Well, some will go up, some will go down. Right. That's what I mean, so what stable means, depending right. on the market you're in. Probably if you're in one of these top 10 markets, you're going to see it go up a little bit. Correct. And so uh, the way that they ranked these, which I think is always important for us to mention, is they said, we're going to look at job growth. We're mm-hmm. going to look at unemployment rates in those cities. We're going to look at the type of employment. They spe- specifically put weight on information technology okay. type jobs. They're going to look at demographics in terms of population growth and people relocating to the area. Uh, so they have a, a variety of metrics they're using to rate these. Uh, Atlanta came in number one. Raleigh came in number two. Dallas was number three. Fayetteville in Arkansas was number four. Greenville in South Carolina, five. Uh, Charleston in South Carolina, six. Huntsville, Alabama, my hometown where (laughs) I grew up, number seven, Space City. Uh, Jacksonville, home sweet home, number eight. San Antonio, number nine. And your alma mater, Knoxville, number 10. Coming in hot. Well, you know what I noticed with many of those markets? How many of those have no state and local income tax? Uh, A significant amount. I thought I heard 70% of those had no state and local income tax. That's not surprising to me at all. Correct. So, yeah. And when you look at it on a map, it's even better because you're literally just looking at the Southeast region. Yeah. There's, they're, they're basically every major city in the Southeast, except for, you know, Houston, New Orleans, Miami, Tampa, Orlando. Um, But that says a lot about Jacksonville. When I think about it from the standpoint of out of all the markets in Florida that have been outperforming, Jacksonville's still set to be probably the top growth market in the state. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with affordability because I know one of the metrics they used was the affordability to buy the median price house. Right. And when you're in the market that you're in, you can feel like things are unaffordable because you've watched these prices rise over mm-hmm. the years. But you have to remember that this is now a national game. This is you're comparing against other markets that are either nearby or, you know, not even nearby sometimes. And it's all relative at this point. Yeah. And I think it was interesting, Atlanta being the number one city on that list. I'm pretty sure it said Sandy Springs out next to it. Sure. And so Atlanta is such a large city that, you know, when you say Atlanta, you're covering three, four counties, just like Jacksonville, but their dense population, that that city has no choice but to grow outwardly. So when they're talking about that Sandy Springs area, that makes sense. They're not sure. talking about downtown Atlanta. But I did see that. And I also noticed that Dallas on there and not Austin, you know, Austin's been on there so many times. They're seeing significant issues in Austin right now with a little bit of the taxation on the homes that we've talked about um, versus their homestead, like what we have in Florida. Yep. There are issues arising in those other states that make sense, right? Um, to why some of these other larger cities that have been so high on the list are no longer on the list. Like I noticed Nashville wasn't on that list. And Correct. Nashville's been on that list for I don't know how many years. Well, they just- Salt Lake City. Salt Lake thing. City. Yep. They have outpriced themselves at this point. That affordability metric has gotten so high, it doesn't even make sense anymore, regardless of the state and local tax. So I thought that was really interesting. And I think you, to your point, 
Jacksonville at number eight, you know, is not surprising to me. You know, for people that live in Jacksonville that are like, man, it feels like prices are getting higher. But when you look at the big picture around the United States, it's not the case. We're still very affordable nationally. And even compared to our big metros in Florida, we're still the most affordable metro in Florida. And that's a big part of what we've been going around and saying, like, look, guys, we're going to outperform because we still have a price advantage in this market. Yet we're on the coast. We have a lot of industry. We have good climate and we have a growing economy. Yeah. So today's December 15th. Uh, yesterday, the Federal Reserve met and the CPI index came out on the 13th. If you want to get this information earlier and you want to have this with no ads in it whatsoever, go to our podcast on Apple, click at the very top, follow, and then follow the podcast and you'll get these early releases before they get to the general public. Now, Alex, one of the things I want to talk about here was that if I'm a buyer, okay, I'm a buyer and I say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to get in, in in the best rate I can, the lowest rate I can, and maximize my affordability, and I don't want to overpay for the home. Like, how do you answer that to a buyer right now? Because it seems to be I either want a lower price on the home or I want a lower interest rate. We really haven't seen both things come to the market, right? Because those two don't coexist, right? Because right? when this rate drops, what's going to happen to these prices? Well, they're going to go back up. They're going to go back up because right. everyone that's been waiting for the rates to drop are going to come in and have a feeding frenzy on these these prices that are currently there, thus driving the demand up, driving the price up. So what do you tell a buyer right now? You know, what can an agent share with someone? What can we say that has, I'm, I'm waiting on rates to get lower or I'm waiting on the price to get lower? What advice are we giving right now? Yeah, absolutely. So one is that you're probably not going to get both those things, right? So right. you need to pick pick what you think you're going to get. And we know numbers-wise, you put the math on a piece of paper, you're always going to win with a lower rate than you are with a lower price. So at that point, that 100%. should tell you how to negotiate the deal. I think seasonality, this season of the market presents an opportunity in some regards. There's fewer buyers to compete with. Maybe the people selling their house during the holidays are a little more desperate to sell their house. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, you can work some deals, I think, compared to saying, I'm just going to wait until the spring or wait until the summer. Uh, you may have more houses to pick from, but you'll also have far more competition at that point too. And, you know, we're seeing, I think, when you look at Jacksonville prices, they fell almost 8% compared to the previous month in November. So they mm -hmm. went down from October to November about 8%. That is largely due to the lag effect of rates hitting a peak in October. And so I think if you look at this, if you can get on the bandwagon a little bit bef as rates are starting to go down, but not sitting here saying, I'm going to try to time it, hit the bottom, mm -hmm. you can probably get a nice fit of prices are still pretty flexible. Mm -hmm. The, the sellers have not smelled the blood in the water of lower rates, so they have not gotten greedy to raise <laughs> the price back up. And I think you can, again, in combination with some of the loan strategies I know you guys have talked about, as well as sellers who are a little bit more motivated, work out to get yourself a pretty nice deal. So let me add this in there, and I think this is an important fact that I think I can't get through enough, and we talk about it all the time. So the reality is this. If you think you're the only person thinking like this— right you know, we're sadly mistaken. Another reality that we have to take into account right now that I think is just absolutely vital is if I look at Moody Analytics and I look at the census track that's on here, if I look at the ages, the amount of population that range in the age, and we say first-time homebuyers 33 years old, but I'm going to go back a little bit more and say, hey, let's start at 28. If I look at 28 years old, there's four and a half million millennials out there, just millennials. If I look at 29 years old, I see close to 5 million. 
30 years old, 5 million. 31 years old, 5 million. Quick math tells me I'm pretty close to 20 already. And then if I look at 30, um, 33 years old, I'm back at four and a half. So that's 25 million people just in that one age group that are wanting to be first-time homebuyers. They have that desire, they want to get that, and they need to be there. Right. Rates drop, look out. They're going to get it. And I, I know that this is a generation that wants to be homeowners. I know that it's a generation that hasn't traditionally seen any high rates. So that fear of missing out also plagues this generation more than it does any other generation. And if their friends own homes and they don't and they want one and those rates come in line to where they can psychologically wrap their head around that price, they're going to go all in. So remember, 25 million people are in the wing right now. Do you think you're the only person that's sitting back waiting for rates to go down? Or do you think you're the only person that's waiting for the price point to drop? There's tons. There's millions of people waiting for this. Right. You know, and I think that that is going to be something that we see cause that pent-up demand to come to the surface. Right. And we know there's pent-up demand. We can measure that. We see that in the form of our own applications and credit pools. We know it's there. Right. So if I'm a buyer and I'm playing that game, hey, pick your entry points, but don't try to time the market. And I think 2023 is going to be a great time to choose your entry point because I think 2024, as we get into a settling phase, we're still going to have some peaks and valleys here, and we're going to come out of some high-level volatility from 2022. 24 is going to be a settling. And when we settle in, price points are going to settle in, and the market's going to get more comfortable, and we'll see more transactions in 24 than we do in 23, which means price points are going to go up. So that's something if I'm a buyer, I take a look at right now because now might be your opportunity. And you don't have to use some of these exotic programs like a 2-1 buy-down, 3-2-1 buy-down. You can just get in at the rate and feel comfortable with it right now. Yeah, so if we go to your settling term, I think that's interesting. Mentally, all the heartburn around this market has been the fact that we're coming from the lows and going to the highs. Absolutely. But what are we about to do? We're about to come from the highs and move lower. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly the 5% that we all know we freaked out about when we first got there on the way up becomes a super attractive rate because <laughs> yeah. now, again, relative to seven, it's awesome. And everybody that is younger, that had never seen these rates, that maybe didn't take action then, I think looks at this and goes, okay, well, we don't know if it's going to go to three. Mm -hmm. And just for the record, it's probably not going to go to three, no. right? We shouldn't expect that. That was an anomaly. But uh, it is something that I think mentally we have a whole set of buyers out there that missed out, weren't able to accomplish their goal. And some, I bet, feel like it was taken away from them right. because the rates were raised uh, or, or increased. And, and so I think that they may come back to this with a little more intensity and a little more intentionality of, okay, well, I know what I did last time. I have PTSD from all the 12 <laughs> offers I submitted and got no attention and couldn't get anything. So I'm just going to do it right from the very first time this time. And you got agents and sellers that I think are, are now far more interested in making deals work. So I think that could spell a recipe for a very active spring Absolutely. and summer next year. Uh, when we when we put all this together, and it you know when rates drop, it's a it's a sixty ninety day lag before we really start to see that come into the market in terms of price gains. So I would not be shocked if we see prices go down through the end of the year, and then prices start to go back up at the beginning of the year. Hundred percent. You know, for those of you that are listening to this on your podcast, uh, obviously again we encourage you to to follow, share the episodes, follow it, but click the follow uh, like button up top. But I encourage you, go to go to YouTube and watch this. We're putting a ton of graphs on there. And as we talk about this, it's hard to really kind of see what we're talking about. 
But these charts, they're all in YouTube. They're all in the show notes. You can click to them and get to them. And if you decide to use them and you want to share them, just give credit to the Market Distillery. I know they'd love uh, to help you out with that. But this is some great data on there. Well, Alex, hey, thanks for being on the show today. I appreciate it as always. Do you want to tell them where they can hear more from the Market Distillery? Yeah, absolutely. So big on Instagram if you want to see pictures. And uh, we will be launching a uh, membership program at the start of 2023. That's exciting. To... uh, cater to the real estate professional, especially in Florida, so that they can have data and be a data-driven agent to help their clients answer their questions. So uh, marketdistillery.com, we'll get you there and we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, I know I'm going to subscribe as soon as it comes out. I can't wait. And also, if you want to hear more from What's Your One More, check us out at the socials platform at What's Your One More. And then also, again, go to the YouTube channel and subscribe. We'd love to hear comments from you as you uh, leave uh, your questions and rank us on there with the star category. Thank you so much. Alex, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Have a great day. got one more shot. I'm going to make it. One more chance, I'm gonna take it I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah